Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, the Ontario Cabinet Shuffle saw many faces demoted or relegated to other portfolios, including former Finance Minister Vic Fidelli. Will this help or hurt the Ford government? We also look deeper into the protest at Saturday's Pride event at Gage Park, and U.S. President Donald Trump approved military strikes on Iran, but then he changed his mind. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The cabinet shuffle uh, that we talked about yesterday here at Queen's Park uh, saw many familiar faces moving to different positions, uh, depending on, I guess, your perspective on this. Some say demotions. Others say, well, it's just shuffling the deck. Uh, relegated to different roles. Vic Fidelli, among others, of course, uh, have been moved. Is this going to help or hurt the Ford government? And why in heaven's name are they even doing it after only one year in power? Uh, Steve Pakin writes about this. Uh, Steve, of course, is the host of The Agenda, which is seen weeknights on TVO, uh, and a blogger, of course. Uh, his blog is, what does Doug's Ford Cabinet Shuffle mean for the future of the government? Well, we can ask him because he's going to join us right now on The Bill Kelly Show. Morning, Steve. How are you today? I am just, I, I am still good. Let good. me put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> nice to hear from you again, Bill. Good to have you. Like It's a, it's a busy time at Queen's Park, and uh, that's right your beat. It's right down the street, of course, from where you guys do your thing. Uh, I loved the blog yesterday. Uh, because you hit the nail on the head. I mean, even our friend David Aiken, who writes for Global News, of course, uh, referenced your uh, your piece yesterday uh, as as asking the basic question: Why is he shuffling the cabinet when the problem, uh, well, might be Ford himself? Well, you just alluded to the numbers, and that's the issue, really, isn't it? I mean, Premier Ford was elected the 26th Premier of Ontario uh, a little over a year ago, and at that time, the Tories almost hit 41 percent of the total vote. The last poll I saw, I saw showed them hovering around 22-23%. That is a precipitous drop in only one year's time. Really quite astonishing. You have to do a lot of things to upset a lot of people uh, over a fairly short space of time to drop that precipitously in so short a period of time. And beyond that, Bill, it's actually worse because the key problem, the numbers suggest, is the Premier himself. Uh, If you look at his approval versus disapproval numbers, The number of people who approve of the job he is doing is less than 20%. The number of people who disapprove of the job he is doing is over 73%. That is an astonishingly high number. To put that in perspective, Premier Ford is more unpopular in less than a year than it took Kathleen Wynne to be in five years. So he's underwater in a huge way, and the question becomes, if he's the problem does shifting all of the cabinet ministers into various and sundry portfolios actually change what the problem is? That's what the discussion should be about. Well, and that's, I'm sure, what a lot of these people got shifted around yesterday asking themselves, like Vic Fidelli, like Caroline Mulroney, uh, and others. Lisa McLeod comes to mind as well, figuring, you know, am I getting thrown under the bus here? It's my boss's policy. It's not my policy. I mean, these guys, you could argue, Steve, were just the messengers of, of what Ford wanted to put across to the, to the voters. That is quite true. And if you look at it, I I can't remember. I mean, you've been around as long as I have. I can never recall a rookie government uh, shifting its finance minister out after just one budget. I don't ever recall that happening. You know, we do remember Paul Martin getting fired by Jean Chrétien, but that was after, I think, eight or nine budgets. Yeah. Uh, I do remember Greg Sorbera temporarily leaving because he was under investigation for a while, totally cleared, uh, but then came right back into finance. So, you know, we've seen... Nothing like this before in the past. And yes, uh, how does one draw the inference anything other than um, somehow Fidelity is being blamed for the government's predicament? 
Uh, Vic Fidelli's a, you know, he's a pretty stand-up guy. He's been around provincial politics since 2011. He was on the opposition benches for seven years, waiting for a chance to get to be Minister of Finance. He finally got there. He brought in a budget that, I think by most accounts, was not, uh, certainly the initial reaction was, this budget could have been a, a heck of a lot tougher. Uh, in fact, the budget will spend $5 billion more than the last Liberal budget, which was supposedly a budget brought in by a bunch of drunken sailors. Um, you know, uh, th- this is the can that Mr. Fidelli is being is being asked to carry. And of course, he was put aside. Lisa McLeod put aside. Lisa Thompson put aside to different to different and more junior portfolios. Uh, it's um, these people have all been extremely loyal to Premier Ford, but um, for whatever reason, the Premier and his team, in their wisdom, have decided they need a completely fresh start. And that's why we saw such a dramatic shuffle yesterday. I, I mean, some of this. I, I think you can justify me. Lisa McLeod, for all intents and purposes, was a train wreck uh, in, in community services, and especially with the autism part of that file. Uh, she did not handle it well. The policy itself was problematic, but the way that she handled it and some of the, the comments that she made publicly, I, I, I think really kind of put her in the firing line. So I can sort of see that. But you're right. The other ones are simply following through on the policies that Ford wanted them to do. Steve, for all the years you've been covering this, maybe you could give us a little inside baseball, because this is the question I got asked yesterday. Uh, so Vic Fidelli gets tied to the can here and he's gone uh and they say it's because of his budget when a finance minister presents a budget does nobody in the premier's office see it before it's presented you know it's very interesting because i asked that very question of some very senior people in the government because we we know that look bill there's two kinds of premiers right there's premiers who've got their fingers in every kind of detail they're operating their briefing books till one or two o'clock in the morning we know Doug Ford is not that kind of premier. I'm not making a value judgment about that. You don't have to be that kind of premier. He's a different kind of premier. He's he, he's much more kind of phoning phoning constituents at all hours of the evening. He is he, he's much more comfortable sort of you know let's call it what it is like being a man of the people. Uh, he's not a guy who's who's going to uh, you know torture his brain till all hours of the of the morning reading briefing books. Uh, so be that as it may, I wondered whether or not he, in fact, had much of a hand in the creation of the budget, because I know he's not a detail guy. And I was told, absolutely certifiably, that Premier Ford looked over every aspect of the budget before it was introduced and ultimately passed. So to say that this was Vic Fidelli's doing, that somehow Fidelli uh, needs, to, needs to carry the can for this because the Premier's office was not involved... To the best of my information, that is simply not accurate. Premier Ford did review the budget in detail before it was introduced, and if the budget was a bust, which seems to be what the Premier's office is saying, given that it's you know, shuffled its finance minister out after just one budget, if it was a bust, then surely he has to bear some of the responsibility on that as well. Well, not only that, but if there's something that he disagreed with in that budget, you'd think they would have talked about that, uh, taken it out, doing something, modified it, whatever the case might be. And even if even if Ford himself is not a policy guy, and you're right, Steve, a lot of leaders just don't go that far. Uh, somebody in his staff is, and Mr. French, who apparently everybody seems to think is running uh, the government for Mr. Ford right now. He's, uh, chiefs of staff always seem to get that that label. But somebody obviously gave this thing the thumbs up and said, yeah, go ahead, Vic, do this. And But yet he's the guy that gets tossed under the bus. And I don't want people to think that you and I are just uh, trying to come to the rescue of, of Vic Fidelli. He's a big guy and he can handle himself. I understand that. But it, it just I'm trying to understand the rationale behind all of these moves yesterday. And, and it looks to me as if it's kind of what we've seen in the past is the art of political deflection again. In other words, let's talk about the cabinet shuffle instead of my low ratings. Well, John Kennedy, the former U.S. president, had a great line, which is victory has a thousand parents and defeat is an orphan. 
And the fact of the matter is the budget, for whatever reason, has been seen to be a political loser in too many circles. And as a result, the Cudeli is having to carry the can for it. We understand this, Bill. This is politics. Yep. You know, at the end of the day, it's about saving the silverware. And at the end of the day, ministers serve at the pleasure of the premier, and they are, in fact, cannon fodder for the premier. And, you know, the, the conventional wisdom in politics has always been you've got to save the center. The, the, the premier's credibility, the premier's brand, the premier's uh, connection to the electorate is what is most important at the end of the day. And if you have to sacrifice some uh, cabinet ministers along the way in order to do that, well, c'est la vie. I have to say, uh, and you're right, we, uh, Vic Fideli doesn't need anybody defending him. He's perfectly capable of doing it himself. Having said that, he was a very classy individual yesterday, right? I mean, yep. He's been put in an unprecedented position. You didn't hear any griping from him. You didn't hear even any off-the-record griping reported in the papers today about how unhappy he may or may not be being shuffled out of the position. In fairness, the premier at his post-cabinet uh, shuffle scrum was very polite about Mr. Fidelli calling him Ontario's number one salesman, and he didn't see the shuffle of Mr. Fidelli as somehow uh, you know, defenestrating him in any way. It was much more a, I'm putting Vic in a position where he can do his thing. He's now economic development minister. He'll be traveling the world, selling Ontario to the world. He's still chairman of cabinet. Uh, he's in charge of, uh, you know, the number one guy in charge of job creation in the cabinet. So it's certainly, as these things go, a soft landing. You know, it's not like he uh, took Vic Fidelli out of um, finance and put him in government services or something like that. He's got a great job. Uh, make no mistake about that. But having said that, it, it certainly and surely must have been injurious to Mr. Fidelli's pride, and uh, he handled it like a champ. He did, uh, which I, I doesn't surprise me at all. I've had Vic on the show many times, and, and he's he's a guy that obviously is a, a stand-up guy, and he gets that. But it, it, I know in a lot of the discussion about why this is happening, Steve, was focused on on the budget. Uh, I, I would suggest, though, that uh, the disapproval ratings that Ford is, is enduring right now has more to do with his body of work in the last year, not just the budget itself. It's the cuts to education. It's the cuts to public health. It's the cuts to the autism file. Uh, and, and, and I think people have simply said, look, we don't like what you're doing. We don't like how you're doing it. Uh, and, and I think maybe what this is is a cold reminder that maybe he didn't get elected as much as the, the public just booted Kathleen Wynne out, and he was the beneficiary of that. No, that's absolutely fair to say. And, I mean, let, let's also, I mean, lest this sound like a pylon on Doug Ford, let's remember, Doug Ford's one of the most successful politicians ever. I mean, let's, let's face facts. A year and a half ago, the guy wasn't even in politics. Right. He, he came out of politics. He won a leadership convention despite receiving fewer votes and winning fewer ridings than Christine Elliott, his prime challenger. He won the convention. Three months later, he's thrust into the middle of an election campaign, which he wins. Now, admittedly, that campaign was all about getting rid of Kathleen Wynne and the liberals. But, you know, you've got to be good to be lucky. And he was good enough. Right. He won a majority government. And there you are. But, yes, let's compare. You know, he's, he says he's got a, he's running a government for the people. The last major conservative government in Ontario that was for the people was Mike Harris's government. Mike Harris came into power and did many of the same things that Doug Ford is doing within weeks of coming in, right? Major program cuts, a big-time uh, um, showdown with the public service. There was a public servant strike. There were hundreds of thousands of teachers protesting in the streets. It's not like it was any quieter back then, 25 years ago, than it has been uh, in Doug Ford's first year. And yet somehow... Mike Harris did it in a way, um, and I think this speaks to what you just said. It's not just what you do, but it's how you do it. Mike Harris seemed to do it in a less bombastic, less in-your-face, more calm, steady, 
we're doing what we said we were going to do. Um, professional, if I can put it that way, kind of way. I'm not sure that, um, that the Ford team gets that same kind of credit. They have been very macho, very bombastic, very aggressive, very in your face, which, you know, may suit the style of Mr. Ford and Mr. French, who are at the center of this government. We are seeing, I think it's fair to say, and I'm going to write more about this next week, we are seeing, uh, I think, uh, the beginnings of a toning down of that kind of rhetoric. I don't know if you saw the press conference that Mr. Ford gave after uh, the shuffle yesterday, Mm -hmm. Bill, but he was contrite. There was no bombast there. He was very calm. Um, Cynthia Mulligan from City TV asked him the key question, you know, do you have to change? I know you've changed the cabinet, but what about you, Premier? Do you have to change? And, you know, Doug Ford a year ago would have said, are you kidding? Damn the torpedoes. Here we go. Yesterday, he said, look, and I've always said everybody in this government can get better, including me. And yes, we've made some mistakes, mistakes along the way, and, but we'll get better, including me. Now, that's a level of contrition I have not heard from this premier over the past year. And furthermore, and here's a good Hamilton angle, you know, when the autism file clearly went south, and as you point out, there have been big problems with the solution that this government has tried to put in place for the autism situation. Um, they brought in Marie Butrioni from Hamilton to, to co-chair an autism advisory council. Now, can you imagine... Uh, even two months ago, this progressive conservative government handing the reins of such an important job to a former liberal cabinet minister. I cannot. So that to me, and there's a bunch of other examples of that as well, that to me is an indication. Those two things, the contrition after the cabinet meeting and the, the appointment of Butriani and some other things in that regard, that suggests to me that they are looking for a kinder, gentler tone in this second year. We'll see. Maybe those are blips. But we'll see. Well, and just to that, I know we're almost out of time. Uh, the, the three appointments that were announced, of course, uh, which were all friends or, or supporters of Mr. Ford, who were apparently they've all been rescinded now. Now, I don't know if that was because of the public backlash on social media uh, because of those announcements, or it's because we may see a kinder, gentler Doug Ford. We don't know that yet. I, I guess time will tell. But as you mentioned at the end of your piece on your blog today, Steve, uh, if he wants to get reelected, there's going to have to be a recalibration as to how he's going to approach this. Well, unlike Mike Harris, who maintained his popularity throughout that first term and was reelected four years later with an even higher percentage of the total votes cast, he got elected in 1995 with 45 percent, and he got a little touch over 45 percent four years later. Uh, Mike Harris did not see a dip of 18 points in his poll numbers in the first year. So clearly, Mr. Ford has to figure out whatever it was that Mike Harris did 25 years ago and keep that coalition together that put him into power. I mean, right now, all of the people who would never normally vote conservative, and I'm talking about people you know, who had supported the liberals for the previous 15 years, a huge chunk of them left the liberals, obviously, and some of them voted New Democrat, but some of them voted Tory as well. And those people, the link with those people has been broken. And Ford, in my judgment, has to spend the next three years trying to reconnect with those switchers. You know, those are people who are... They're from Missouri, Bill. They say, show me. Show me what you got. And those are the people he's got to reestablish trust with if he wants to have any hope of getting reelected in three years' time. Well, one of the things I'm hearing, and I'm sure you get the same kind of feedback, too, uh, those that have become disenchanted with the premier, is that uh, unlike Mike Harris, who gave us the common sense revolution, said, here, read this. This is what I'm going to do. Ford was the antithesis of that during the campaign. He said, no, I'm not going to do any of that. And maybe the most famous uh, pronouncement he made was nobody will lose their job. Uh, and we know that's not true now. So uh, I guess the, the political axiom that he has to lean on here is don't make promises you can't keep. 
Well, you're right. Mike Harris did bring out the common sense revolution a full year before that 1995 election. People had really been able to go through it with a fine-tooth comb. Mr. Ford, of course, inherited the People's Guarantee, which was the party platform brought in by Patrick Brown, his predecessor. But as soon as he got in, he basically said, that People's Guarantee is dead, and we're going to run on a very small number of things, and here they are. So there are actually very few promises made leading into the election. He put out a number yesterday saying 85% of the promises he made, he has already kept. Uh, If that's true, the whole promises made, promises kept mantra, it's not working right now. No, it's not. Steve Haken, of course, host of The Agenda on TVO. As always, uh, thank you so much, Steve. Always a pleasure. Great talking to you again, Bill. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It has been a uh, very tense week, a very hectic week. Uh, Pride week is supposed to be a time for celebration. Uh, It uh, started out that way. It uh, sadly didn't end that way with what happened at Gage Park, of course, last weekend and uh, some of the subsequent uh, turmoil and conflict that has resulted. And, uh, well, we're not sure exactly where this is going to go. We are told by Hamilton Police Services and by city officials that uh, there's probably going to be another rally in front of City Hall this weekend, as there has been for the last number of weekends, of course, over the last number of months. Uh, We're also told there could be a counter-protest there, too. We're hoping that things are not going to get out of hand. But the other element to this, too, is, is how has this whole thing impacted the community? Uh, I want to bring uh, Cameron Croach back into this uh, discussion uh, and, and get some perspective on this. First of all, Cameron, thanks for joining us. It's great to have you back on the show today. Thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me on. I just want to quickly say that um, taking off all the hats I wear in the community, you know, as part of Pride Hamilton's board and as a member of the LGBTQ Advisory Committee to talk just from my own personal perspective. Well, and that's why I wanted to bring you on today. I know you wear a lot of different hats here, but I want to talk to you as private citizen. Uh, as a resident of this community, as somebody who cares about this community. I mean, you know, you've sought public office before. You're doing an awful lot of things in the community. But I want to find out how you, as an individual, uh, viewed what has happened over the last little while, uh, the city's response, the police response, the, the media's response to this whole thing. Uh, you, you're obviously right in the middle of this thing. Give me your perspective on what's happened over the last few days. Yeah, I first want to say... Thank you to the community and the allies and the people that came forward to be there um, to protect uh, folks at the event who stood up to those hateful, violent folks who came out uh, seeking a fight. It's an important thing I want to say up front. Um, It's been really disappointing, frankly, Bill, all of this, and the response or the non-response from the mayor um, and the comments from the chief of police on your show recently were really hard to hear. Yeah, there's a couple of different things going on. I know the mayor uh, has told us that he did issue a press release, a media release, I guess the day after, on the last Monday, uh, about this. But uh, I, I got the sense from others uh, that have served and others that were there uh, that they expected to hear more from city council in, in general, not just the mayor. Yeah, it would have been good if city council came out and made a statement about this, discussed it in any meaningful way. I think, though, the priority here just isn't coming from the city, uh, as far as I can tell. The next Hamilton Police Services Board meeting is scheduled for July 18th. I would think something like this would warrant um, an emergency meeting of the Hamilton Police Services Board to discuss it. Well, uh, because of the comments that uh, Chief Gert made, of course, on the program a couple of days ago that have been well reported in the media, for those that didn't hear it, of course, uh, it's it's on our webpage. You can go onto the Bill Kelly Show page you know, if you didn't hear the interview. Uh, but essentially, uh, the gist of what Chief Gert had said, just for those that did not here was that uh, uh, had police been invited to uh, the, the the Pride celebrations at Gage Park, 
uh, there would have been a different deployment of officers. Uh, things would have been different. They would have been there with the crowd, in the crowd, and there probably would have been a different outcome. Uh, how do you respond to that? Yeah, um, I have a pretty clear response on that subject. I'm a little baffled by that. It's either that the police chief didn't speak to other people in the police force before coming on and saying that, didn't seem to understand where the conversations had already taken place, but police were there last year, so they knew exactly where to go. They also knew that there was an increased presence in the city from Yellow Vest folks, Canadian nationalists, Sons of Odin, and others. They didn't need to call Pride at all to ask the question of what was going to happen this year. But when they did, Pride walked them through it by telling them exactly where the permit area was and what side of the park they should be on in order to respond quickly. They were also told that there would be an escalation from last year in terms of numbers and to be prepared. So I'm a little mystified because protesters showed up at exactly the same place and almost exactly the same time and location they did last year, and police instead had a couple of officers sitting in cruisers on the Lawrence Street parking lot on the opposite side of the park. So I can't understand how their own intelligence um, that they gathered last year wouldn't have been useful for them to understand that they should have been on the other side of the park. Okay, now that's that's a different perspective on things, though. I I don't know that a whole lot of people knew that you did have conversations with police about what was going to happen and where. Well, Pride, they did call Pride and ask, you know, for information. And I'll be honest to say the person they spoke to is me. And I can tell you that in excruciating detail, I drew up the permit map on my computer and made sure that person on the opposite end of the phone had a copy of the map in front of them when we were discussing it. So it's really hard for me to um, accept the comments by the chief of police because they're completely out of step with my personal experience in the situation. So they they, they knew, I, according to uh, you, when you hung up that phone after that conversation with police, were you confident that they knew exactly what was going to happen and where it was going to happen and what time it was going to happen? That was my understanding. I mean, they called us, right? They yeah. called me and asked for clarification about what had happened last year. To be honest, I was surprised by that call because they were there. So I'm not sure what extra information I could have given them. Um, they said on your program, I believe, or somewhere else, that they knew there would be an increased presence of folks in town that weekend and were tracking them and their movements. So, again, I'm not sure how police were caught off guard by this or how they misunderstood this. Well, and again, we've asked the chief that, and he answered that. And obviously enough, a lot of people have some concerns about how he handled this. But uh, when you did go to Gage Park that day, when when the celebration started, were you surprised that uh, that there was not a police presence, a significant police presence there? I'm not necessarily surprised. I know that police often have to uh, deploy in certain police ways. I'm not really privy to, frankly, and so I didn't expect them to be standing around right at the permit area. Um, at the edge of the permit area, pardon me, but um, I was surprised when things did start to get violent that there were only two police officers standing in a large field. So, And they were standing well back from, as far as I can tell, well back from the area and not engaging. And I found that hard to watch. I understand that they were sort of understaffed at that moment and didn't want to engage with what looked like probably to them um, and which was a, a violent situation. But that didn't stop many of us from walking over there and making sure we witnessed what happened and, and seeing what happened and um, making sure that uh, people in our community were okay. So, again, that was, uh, again, hard to watch and hard to understand. So they were observing? They were standing back from the uh, this site of violence, absolutely. And to be fair, again, like there were only two of them. 
Mm-hmm. And so I'm not sure if police are equipped in a situation like that with two officers to get involved, and they were calling for backup, according to what they told me. So, you know, that sounds reasonable. Again, you can still be there to witness and stand back at the same time. And you, in, in hindsight, I mean, were you told that, that they were looking for support, they were looking for backup? Um, I mean, that's what one officer did tell me, that was that the other officer was calling in backup. That's what they said. Um, I have no idea what that means, to be honest, Bill. I'm not super familiar with police protocol. But I want to get back to your other point about the recruitment booth, because I think that yeah. that's an issue that is also kind of um, a mystery to me. Having a recruitment booth at Pride, whether Pride folks approved that recruitment booth or not, that recruitment booth would have been on the, again, opposite side of the park from the permit area. Those off-duty officers there to recruit people to the police services would not be prepared for, um, necessarily prepared for that kind of interaction. I don't understand how a 10 by 10 vendor spot would have solved this problem. If the solution was that they wanted to have uniformed and armed police officers patrolling around Pride, well, that's something that the Pride board made clear that wasn't something they were comfortable with. Again, that's all in the event area, which if you're walking as a, as a person in Gage Park and have ever been to Gage Park, or we're at Pride, no, wasn't that close to where this happened. So there's a lot here to unpack and understand. I think it's important for your listeners to understand that this isn't a matter of what the chief said, oh, it's an 85-acre park, and what, you know, what, where we didn't know where this was going to happen, and what could we do? That's just 100% not true. They were there last year at the exact same site, and the protesters returned at the same location and the same time. I'm going to ask you the same question, that one of the same questions anyway, that I, I asked Chief Gert about when he was here the other day, Cameron. I, I want to get your perspective on this, because I'm not so sure that you and I have talked about this over the n- t- many times that we've had discussions about the LGBTQ rights, etc., uh, the question I asked him was basically, why is there such an acrimonious relationship between the LGBTQ community and police services? And it's not just a Hamilton problem. It seems to be all over the place. That's a huge question, a lot to unpack in terms of a deep history between the state and marginalized people. And I'm not really someone who can speak on that wholly. I can say in Hamilton there have been a lot of incidents, um, raids, um, other kinds of things that have happened here between the community. I would say even most recently with the Hamilton Police Services board, board appointment, which I think actually kind of bears on the situation quite acutely. You had marginalized communities, people from the two-spirit LGBTQIA plus community coming out saying, hey, we need to make sure we get someone on this board because we're concerned about the relationship between police and marginalized communities. And you can see the result and the issue, right? A recent needs assessment came out, and that's where I would direct your listeners and direct people for more of an answer about this. That pointed out that, well, people don't feel safe in their community, that disproportionately queer, trans, people of color, um, youth don't feel safe in their community here in Hamilton. So those systemic issues play into this a lot. And I think that the kinds of pervasive issues, pervasive systemic issues in policing um, contribute to this. I heard some of the language the chief used the other day when trying to talk about the 2S LGBTQIA plus community, and I thought that language was not quite on, frankly, right? I think more training needs to happen, more exposure needs to happen, um, and that's not, that's not the case, it appears, based on the con- kind of conversation and kind of words that he was using to describe the community. So I think there's a big gap there, right? I don't think that's on the community. The community and- is under-resourced and marginalized, and that's not on them to provide that kind of um, training and things like that. 
a couple of things about that, because that, that, we've talked about it, and I, I understand your angst about the police service board uh, appointments, uh, but of course, you know, their their rationale for that and their answer to that is, look, at that's not really a police issue. I mean, the two provincial appointments are actually made by the Ontario government, and the citizen appointments by city council. Uh, they had an opportunity to do something, and, and, and you are one of many groups in this community uh, that have some angst about and some concern about the appointments, appointments and, the, and the composition of the Police Services Board. Uh, and, and you're right. I mean, notwithstanding you know the, the qualifications of everybody that's on there, uh, they had a chance to do something about that with the appointments, because the, there was a series of them obviously made in the last couple of months, and uh, many people in this community think that they missed the mark with that, and, and, and that's something that needs to be addressed. I understand that totally. But, but can I just interject there, Bill? Yeah. When the, when the LGBTQ Advisory Committee was struck, and we got there in that room, and folks looked around at one another, what that committee decided to do was to pass a motion at its very first meeting to call for a reselection process. If that committee, an advisory committee that city council has said publicly doesn't really have any power, can stand up and say, hey, we don't think the selection process for selecting this committee was appropriate, we want to push back on that. Why can't the Hamilton Police Services Board do the same? They're saying, hey, you know, we don't have any power here. The power you have is at your first meeting say, we have a problem with this. We're standing up about this. We want to make sure someone from marginalized communities is on this board. So that's not happened. I've never heard anyone at Hamilton Police Services say that. And I think that's a missed opportunity for them, again, to connect to the community. You speak out. Others in this community speak out. Uh, and have been quite vocal about this, and we've talked with many other people about many of the issues that, that you and I are discussing this morning. Do you feel that you're being heard by the right people? I think that the other day there was a community conversation at City Hall in council chambers. When you talk about the right people, I think a lot of the right people were in that room. The community was there. They came together and began the process of trying to talk about this began the process of trying to process what had happened um, and talk about things that have happened from the flag-raising ceremony through to Pride. And I think that that's, that's who we need to be talking to right now. That's the focus of my attention and time. And um, in terms of other people who should be listening to this and should be responding, like the mayor, um, you know, certain um, other city officials, yeah, I kind of wish they would get involved in this conversation in a meaningful way. Um, I, I know that the mayor has not personally, reached out to either of Pride or the LGBTQ Advisory Committee um, to, to show up to a meeting, to email, to phone. Those things haven't happened. Do I think that would be a start of a conversation? Sure. Um, there's been a suggestion that, hey, you know, you know, have you invited these people to come? I don't think the, the onus is on the community to do that. Others showed up to the community conversation. City Manager Jeanette Smith was there. A counselor, some counselors were there. And I think that um, it's got to be the onus of folks who are allies to our community to show up here to support us and not to expect all the work should be done by marginalized groups. In light of what's happened, and, and I'm going to leave that out there and just let the elected officials do with that as they, as they wish, and they'll be judged accordingly uh, by everybody in the community, not just by uh, the LGBTQ community. But what I've noticed over the last couple of days, and I don't know if this is, is, uh, has filtered over to you as well, though, Cameron, uh, some of the, the feedback I'm getting on social media, there, there was outrage, obviously, and concern uh, with what happened in Gage Park last weekend. But as people seem to dissect this and analyze this, and, and uh, we get you know each day removed from this, 
I'm starting to get some some sense from some people anyway that they're starting to feel as if, you know what, there's blame on both sides here. In other words, you're being painted not just as people that are, are being victimized to a certain extent here, but you're also being painted as uh, there are certain people within there that are part of the problem too. And that it, it kind of bothers me. That's the Donald Trump, hey, there's good people on both sides. It's kind of the, the reverse of that. There's bad people on both sides. Uh, that all of a sudden that, well, you know what, maybe you guys need to clean up your act a little bit too. Do you, do you, are you getting that sense? I haven't had a ton of feedback like that um, personally, but I know that that sentiment is certainly out there and that there is a rising uh, sentiment linked to um, the kind of violence we saw at the park. And and this is over and above what you usually hear, like, why would you even have to have pride? How come they have to have a special week? Yada, yada, yada. You've been hearing that for years, but it just seems as if it's rearing its ugly head again this week. It's unfortunately in the city of Hamilton right now, what happening is that there's an emboldened environment that's allowing sort of, as far as I'm concerned, um, a real problem to rise here, right? So we're allowing protests on city property to happen on a weekly basis and have been for half a year now. When you have an environment like that, and when you stoke that fire, this is the result of that. It's not okay to just say that. Um, it's not okay to ha- ask you know, certain people to come out and speak uh, against these hate groups. It's got to be everybody, including the folks who represent us at City Hall, saying it's not okay to have these, these hateful acts happening. It's not okay to let this go on. Um, and, and when you embolden that, right, then you do get what you're seeing, which is, I think, a rising uh, situation of hatred in our community, which really needs to end. That's bothersome uh, as, as members of this community, the greater community. Uh, you know, when I hear about what's going on down at City Hall on, on Saturdays, uh, I, people that tell me what's being on those placards, what's being written on those placards, uh, you're not the only group that's being targeted, obviously. Uh, this, is, this is a much bigger problem than, than some people are characterizing it. And, and that's maybe one of the takeaways that we need to have a discussion about here, is why is this happening in this community? I mean, this, this is the sort of thing that we used to watch on the television news at night and say, boy, I'm glad it doesn't happen in our country. It is happening right now. And I'm not sure, well, it's pretty obvious to us that we're not quite sure how to deal with this. I think a lot of the reasons that we see these things happening and I'll, I'll say that I myself haven't been a lifelong um, LGBTQ activist. It's not something I've been doing my whole life. It's something I've come to more recently and been involved more in my community and giving back. But silence um, is what I'm talking about here. And I, I participated in that years ago and, you know, have some regret around that. We have to make sure that if, if we're in a position of leadership in this city, that we're not silent. And Hamilton is a very, very silent place, in my experience, in terms of these kinds of issues. When things like this happen, it's a closed ranks, keep it quiet, don't respond type of atmosphere. And that, uh, that lack of a response, that lack of saying, no, this isn't okay, that we have to do something about that, allows this kind of emboldened environment, right? It allows hatred to, sp- to spread and to fester. And I think that this is a lesson, I hope, for all the leaders in our city, that we can't sit idly by uh, without speaking out. It's one thing to be in a position of authority and show up to your meetings and make your decisions, but there's another part of being a leader in this city, and that means speaking up and speaking out 
um, for those communities who are most vulnerable. Well, and this is the, I know we're just about out of time here, but the way I've looked at this is we cannot look at what happened last weekend in Gage Park as a one-off incident. Uh, what we need to do is look at this as as, uh, as a microcosm of a bigger problem that we need to discuss here in this community, and that's certainly part of it. But, uh, you know, we, we need to get you right. If we don't address it, uh, silence, you know, it leads to complicity, and, and that can be problematic too. Uh, we will talk more about this, Cameron, I know, in the days and weeks ahead. Thanks so much for coming on again today. Really appreciate the time. Thanks for having me on, Bill. Take care. Cameron Croce, of course, a former municipal candidate and active member in the LGBTQ community. Uh, we will, as we said, follow up on this. Uh, more to come. City Council is dealing with some of the issues happening around the City Hall property. Uh, we talked with Brad Clark about that yesterday. Uh, and I think the mayor's coming on next week for a town hall. I'll have to check the calendar. But in the next couple of days, anyway, he's going to be on here. And we'll certainly give him an opportunity to respond to that as well. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. What a day in Washington yesterday. Justin Trudeau, of course, was down there to talk about trade talks and a number of other things. But uh, it was almost overshadowed, pretty much overshadowed anyway, as far as the Washington uh, media were concerned, uh, about the drone being shot down, of course, uh, by the, uh, well, we're not even sure if it was the Iranian government, but that seemed to be the focus of the conversation. Uh, And apparently uh, they came this close to actually firing a retaliatory uh, mission against uh, the Iranians. Uh, Apparently Trump gave it the thumbs up and then not too long after that gave it the thumbs down. So what is happening? And uh, especially in light of the fact that, let's face it, there's an election there. Does the U.S. really want to go to war, uh, even in a limited fashion, against uh, Iran in this situation? Elliot Tepper has been following this, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at uh, Carleton University. Uh, first of all, Elliot, thanks for joining us. It's a busy time and a, just a crazy day in Washington yesterday, wasn't it? It certainly is, Bill. I mean, I, I was watching as they sat there in, in the uh, Oval Office. Uh, as you know, they, when they have these visits, uh, they, the dignitary, in this case our Prime Minister, was sitting there beside him. He, 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 Mr. Trudeau almost looked like a fifth wheel there because I mean, the whole focus of the, yesterday was about what happened with the drone. Yes. I don't know. Maybe that's the only good part of this is that... Our prime minister was off the hook for potentially uh, awkward questions about are you going to get the deal signed or not, and will the will the Trump administration really have our back uh, when it comes to talking to Xi Jinping? That was what they were doing down there. So yes, uh, this is startling news. The attack on the drone, uh, taking it down, is just the most recent escalatory uh, next step in what is clearly a simmering and the expanding conflict potential between Iran and the U.S., and we're at the anniversary of the U.S. pulling out of the uh, Iran nuclear deal. So this is kind of the downstream, you talk about straight or move, so a downstream uh, effect of the U.S. having a major change of policy. Well, let me ask you about that, because I heard from more than one observer as I was watching the coverage uh, on all of the networks going back and forth yesterday afternoon, uh, and that seemed to be a common thread uh, for most of the people that were uh, observing this that said, look, if he hadn't pulled out of that deal, none of this would be happening. Well, that's always a, a possibility. The, after all, the U.S. and let's, let's remember where all this started. In 1979, November, uh, the Iranian Revolution happened. That is, this theocratic regime came to power, and essentially their first act was to take over the American embassy and to hold a substantial number of, of uh, 444, I think, so 444 days. So a lot of people were held hostage. Remember, we got involved in that through the through the Canadian caper and rescuing some of those American diplomats. Ken Taylor, yeah. And, and, and Sadly, Ben Affleck didn't know that, but the rest of the world did. Yeah, we had genuine Canadian heroes and, and diplomacy there. But 
the first act of the new regime basically was to declare war on America by taking over its embassy. I know it wasn't a shooting war, but that's an act of war. That's a hostile sure. act, to put it as gently as you can. And it was resolved only uh, a bit by the release of those hostages, plus the ones we smuggled out. So the, it's been going on since then. So the bad relations were getting to the point where there was real concern by the Obama years that Iran was going to become not only a hostile state to America, but a nuclear-armed hostile state that could upset the whole balance of power in the world and certainly in the region and threaten uh, everybody. So that was the origin of the nuclear deal, which was laboriously worked out and which was rejected, as we know, by the pulling out a year ago by the new administration under Trump. Uh, which obviously, as far as Iran was concerned, simply said, okay, fine, then, you know, it's a game off. We're going to do what we want. Uh, the interesting thing about that, though, the, the, and the consistent thing we got from all the other observers is while they were still in the pact, the United States was still in the pact, Iran was, was complying with everything, and yeah. every observer was there. So now they've kind of gone rogue, or have they? I mean, is this the government that's acting like this, or are these, uh, as some people are suggesting, uh, some rogue elements within uh, the, the, the Iraq army, for instance? Well, let's back up a little bit. Uh, the Iranians, in fact, have maintained up until last week, their side of the deal, because the European, remember, this deal is a united, this isn't a bilateral arrangement. Yeah. This was the European Union, all the members of the Security Council, China and Russia, you know, us included in France and so forth, but plus Germany. So this is an international pact which Iran was keeping in place, and the Europeans were trying to find a way around the American sanctions so that telling Iran, look, don't worry about it, the U.S. is out, but you're still going to get sanctions relief. That is, we're going to find a way around uh, what the U.S. is doing to you. So don't pull out, don't pull out, don't go nuclear. And just last week, Iran, as I guess everybody knows, has said, well, we're not actually pulling out all the way, but we're going to start enriching uranium beyond the limits we agreed to. But otherwise, we're still staying in. And there's a meeting, and this is important to what we're talking about. There's two meetings coming up, Bill, that relate to what we're talking about. In, on June 28th, <laughs> coming right up, there was a high-level meeting under France's uh, uh, auspices, but um, the EU was calling a high-level meeting dealing with Iran, and Iran was going to be there, and all the other states were going to be there. Russia was going to be there to say, what can we do to maintain the pact so you don't go nuclear and therefore trigger you know, this, the awful consequences. And meanwhile, tit-for-tat uh, responses have been held, as we know, with the sinking. You and I have been talking about yeah. this, I think. Mm -hmm. So the U.S. And, and Iran have basically been at a low-level conflict, if not de facto war situation, since 1979. It was patched over somewhat with the signing of the nuclear deal, uh, but it, nothing in that deal said that uh, to use the current phrase and why why Trump pulled out, it didn't stop other aspects of Iranian behavior other than nuclear. And that was considered a very bad deal, according to Trump. And also uh, parts of those, uh, the original agreement expired. He said, I can, I can negotiate a much, much better deal. Uh, Obama was terrible. We're going to stop their malign influence. Iran is on a roll all across the Middle East. And, and you know, Saudi Arabia and other allies of the U.S. 
and Israel were on the other side of that. Then, then uh, Trump said, "We this is important too. We do not wish to have regime change in Iran. That's not the purpose of the sanctions. We just want you to come back to the negotiating table." Whereas clearly Bolton and others were saying all along, really, what we want is regime change. That's part of the problem, though, isn't it? We're getting mixed messages uh, from the Trump yes. administration. And, and I don't know, Elliot, that I ever thought you and I would be sitting here talking about Donald Trump as the moderate in this discussion, but he seems to be at this stage. Well, um, let's talk a bit about the mixed messages. The other meeting I was referring to is that coming right up this Sunday, there's going to be a meeting in Israel where John Bolton is going to be there. And he's meeting with his Russian counterpart, plus Israeli uh, security officials, to talk about Iran, to talk about de-escalation, basically. But this is a key meeting as well. So there's John Bolton going off and perhaps pursuing one kind of foreign policy uh, result, and Pompeo may be with him. What seemed to have happened in this case is that the Pentagon weighed in, even without Mattis there, saying, Look, there's some serious consequences. We're, we're we're all prepared to do what you want. We're underway. We'll pull. You tell us to go, and they did, and we're set. But this could have grave consequences. Have you thought all this through, Mr. President? I'm paraphrasing, of course, because mm-hmm. this is all off the record. And Trump said, "No, I do not want a war." Uh, Iran has been saying, "I don't. We don't want a war." So neither say, side says they want a war. And you've heard the Trump saying, "You know, this is just some rogue element." Where's the rogue element? Is it in the U.S. or is it in Tehran? Well, and that's the thing I think that's that's frustrating an awful lot of observers right now, is you've got uh, Trump for the first time actually listening to the Pentagon and listening to his generals, uh, and uh, and you've got Pompeo and, and Bolton on the other side uh, waving the sabers, and even Lindsey Graham yesterday said, uh, you yeah. know, get, uh, Iran, get ready for some severe pain, uh, which kind of tells me where his head's at through this whole thing as well. Uh, but and that's as you mentioned. There's a number of different ramifications, uh, none the least of which is the fact that there's a bit going to be an election next year. And does the president really want to be involved in a ground war in the Middle East during an election? Yes, uh, of course. One of the possibilities is maybe he does want a nice little war someplace that can be contained, yeah. so that everybody rallies around the flag. Uh, so you know, maybe Venezuela would be a volunteer for this or some such. But a major war involving massive numbers of American troops. Uh, but beyond that, it could spin out of control, so that the possibility exists, since Iran clearly is the weaker state here, they have other assets they can use. They, can, they have proxies and, and close friends, if not actual proxies, they can employ all across the Middle East, and certainly in Iraq. Uh, many avenues for creating pain for America exist, and I hate to say this, but if all-out war broke out, and if that regime thought they were going down, they could threaten to say, we're not going down without creating Armageddon. We are going to unleash a war of final annihilation against Israel, because they've been arming uh, Hezbollah and Hamas with uh, high-powered weapons, and they've got their own military. We can attack American forces through our proxies all over. We can do civilian uh, attacks around the world. Remember, there were things in Argentina and uh, Bulgaria connected to Iran earlier. So this is a regime that has a lot of dangerous, dangerous tools that it could employ if 
push comes to shove. Well, that was one of the unintended consequences of, of the Bush war against uh, uh, Iraq, Iraq oh, yeah. wasn't it? I mean, you know, obviously you know, the, the big pushes, they were going across the desert towards Baghdad, but at the same time they were launching Scud missiles over to Israel. Uh, yes. And and <laughs> the same thing could happen, but it's going to be much a, a much greater magnitude, I would think, if they decided to do that. Yes, it's a, we are in a different situation now. Uh, Israel has, uh, without a lot of announcement, been intercepting the flow of missiles in particular from Tehran through Syria to Hezbollah and Lebanon. So that, as you know, there's been a number of air attacks, but then, you know, what if those missiles are put on civilian airlines? So the, it's, it's clear that this would be a, um, this, if this spins out of control, it could have enormous consequences. And Trump at the last minute has taken steps to say, maybe we'll think twice. Keeping in mind also, by the way, since you raised it, John Bolton was a key advisor in sending troops into Iraq mm-hmm. in the first place. Yeah, isn't it funny how these things come full circle sometimes? Yeah. Uh, and, and obviously this is a guy that uh, is kind of the Wild West sort of a guy that just likes to you know th- swing the, the weight around. Uh, but it's it's interesting as uh, I watched through the course of the day yesterday, uh, even around noontime when he sat down in the old office with uh, Prime Minister Trudeau about what was going on, and and that's where f- Trump first said, "Well, maybe I don't think it was anybody in in, in any authority right. that did this." That, yeah, so that obviously that's yeah, that's but he's changed his mind again later in the afternoon. Uh, yes. it, you're getting a different read from him almost every 15 or 20 minutes. So I, I get the sense, Elliot, that this isn't over yet. I mean, they're still waiting and deciding well, what they're going to do in the way of retaliation. This crisis is not over. It has great potential for accidental misunderstanding or an actual intentional act that has grave and unintentional consequences. We're not out of the woods on this. What we have now is is the possibility that diplomacy and cooler heads can prevail. To that point, uh, again, there's, there's a, a troubling thing issue here that that's, uh, I, I think, going to be a factor in this. We know that Donald Trump doesn't read briefings. We know that he doesn't pay a whole lot of attention. He's not a he's not a detailed guy when it comes to a lot of this stuff. He doesn't much know much about the Middle East, except from a Dan, you know Netanyahu's probably told him. Uh, I, I don't. Maybe he understands the dynamic of what's gone on, and maybe some of the history that you've just uh, recounted for us here, from dating back to 1979. But without that knowledge, I mean, this is the guy that's making the ultimate decision here. Should we feel uneasy about the fact that that, that now he's placed himself into a situation like this that he could make the wrong call and and send us off in, in a direction that we don't. Nobody really wants to go. Well, he's made two calls. He said, "Yes, we're going to go." No, we're not. <laughs> he has made these calls, and it's not just Israel. Remember how close he is to Saudi Arabia. Yeah, and uh, there's other other states in the region, the UAE, and others that have influence in Washington. Uh, they have the ear of the president, and there's, you know, beneath all this is always oil politics, and so the fact is that uh, the U.S. and Iran have been on opposite sides and in a confrontational mode since 1979, uh, and the Iranian regime has indeed been involved in malign behavior. Uh, throughout that time period, they do have all of these various uh, tools at their disposal, and uh, the possibility exists that the only blip we've had in a positive direction was the Obama negotiated accord, which is again an international accord involving a number of powers. The possibility that those kinds of powers plus regional powers that really don't want this to spin out of control and have the ear of the president, whatever his understanding of the region, might still get us out of this. But we are in a tenuous situation 
in a very dangerous part of the world. But given his relationship with Israel, and, and with the Saudis for that matter, with the Crown Prince, uh, both of those countries, by the way, would, would love for the United States to mess up uh, you know, Iraq, Iran right now. Uh, they don't like them. I mean, the Crown Prince does not like uh, them. Obviously, Israel's got a, a concern about this as well. Are, are they pushing him towards conflict? I would think I can only speculate on this because we don't know what Israel, I don't know what Israel's uh, innermost security uh, concerns are here and what, where, where their concerns lead them. I would think they may well be cautioning, don't start a major war. We don't like this Iranian regime. We want them to change their behavior. We'd be glad to look. Remember, uh, it wasn't that long ago that this fixed points in Middle East politics were that Turkey, Israel, and Iran, de facto, had a common interest containing the the forces of autocracy and nationalism in the Arab states. So, it, not that long ago, Turkey and Iran were de facto allies of Israel, and that all changed with the, the when, when the theocracy came to power. So, this is a fluid part of the world where alliances can shift. But I'm not sure Israel is pushing for the U.S. to launch any kind of a war at this point. Well, Mr. Netanyahu's got his own problems at home, doesn't he? Yes, uh, but the annihilation of the state is first and foremost on everybody's mind. And he, uh, whatever one might think of Netanyahu, he certainly has a grasp on the power politics of the region. Absolutely does. Uh, Is this a truce? I mean, you know, come the weekend, everybody's going home from Washington this weekend, but the White House, unless the president's going to go play golf again, uh, is going to be active. Uh, does is whose move is it now? I guess that's the the question everybody's asking. Does the United States still hold that card that yeah we owe you one for this, or are they just going to let this go? It's diplomacy's move. It's time now for basically well, why widening, is he so- <laughs> widening the space for non-conflict, if I could put it that way. But if, way. if it's diplomacy's turn, what's Bolton doing over there? Well, this is why I specifically wanted to raise this, and he's talking to the Russians, and the Russians are going to say, and, I'm, and we don't know, I'm just speculating on the Israeli side of this, but the Russians, I think, are going to be emphatic with Bolton that do not take steps that can, that can lead to an Iranian-U.S. war, and they are players, too, in their own fashion. The Russians have their own uh, interest and their own tools to use. So it, it is a very fraught and dangerous and complex situation, the complexities of which, as you pointed out, may not be felt by the American president, but the desire not to go to war is something he instinctively does feel. He campaigned on getting us out of these endless wars, and he has uh, basically, as you know, withdrawn American forces from the region and put them on the border with Mexico. So uh, the... um, the president, I think, is cautious. Uh, Trump is cautious in the use of military force. G20 is coming up in just a, a little while here, too. I got to figure that the Middle East has just moved to the top of the list on the agenda. And nobody wanted that. The G20 has other things to talk about, yeah. including uh, if, if Trump fulfills his promise, he's going to sit with Xi Jinping, and one of the things he's going to say is, you know, Canada is really in a bad situation here. Why don't you why don't you back off? I, by the way, I was never confident that he will remember that by the time he gets to the G20. But he, yeah. he's, he's made that pledge publicly. Xi Jinping has heard it, whether it would affect Xi Jinping. Uh, it, it's rather sad that our prime minister has to ask, ask the president to see if he can intervene with Xi Jinping to at least take a meeting.
Well, that's because right now the Chinese president's not returning <laughs> phone calls. No. Uh, it gets curiouser and curiouser as things go on. Elliot, thanks as always. Great to get your perspective on this. Well, you're very welcome, and let's keep our fingers crossed. You bet. Elliot Tepper, of course, uh, from Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.